Well, this is a huge honour. I am here today with Michael Maloney. I can't actually believe that I have been able to access some profound people in our field and Michael was right there from the beginning. Your journey is documented many places, Michael, but for our listeners, how did this all start? Well, it's a very interesting story. There are many chapters to it, but the one that's probably most important was when I returned to public education, met Eric and Elizabeth Houghton. Eric was trained by Ogden in precision teaching. I had just been trained in direct instruction by Zeg Engelman. We met at a meeting and immediately realized the potential of putting these two systems together. And for the next uh, three and a half, four years, we worked in classrooms, teaching children and adults how to use the chart, how to you know, become competent with direct instruction. And we were just too damn successful. <laughs> so the school couldn't handle all that change. So they just fired us. That's a lot of uh, work that you just summarized there in about three sentences. Can I make you go back a little bit? And Absolutely. All questions are fair. <laughs> Tell me how you first, you started in education, correct? Yes. Uh, 1964, I graduated with a teacher's certificate in the province of Ontario in Canada. Okay. So tell me, like, where did your interest for teaching come from? Well, I thought I wanted to be a doctor and then I went and became a, an orderly and I learned very quickly that I did not want to be in the medical profession in any way, shape or form. So my second choice was law. I looked at that around and I thought, no, I don't want to do that either. So I finally wound up going to teacher's college after I had my, my first degree. And like, were there any influences early in your life, um, either your parents or, or anyone that you grew up with? No, I was the first uh, first in our family on either side to get a degree. Really? Right. Like, what was your upbringing like? My father was a former prison guard in a maximum security prison. Wow. My mother was a nurse in a psychiatric ward in the, one of the larger psychiatric hospitals in the area. They were both amazing people. My mother graduated in 1936, right in the middle of the Depression, and went to work in Harlem, in West Harlem, in the U.S., because it was the only place she could get a job. My dad was already a guard, so they wouldn't let him out. They wouldn't, like, he tried to join the Army when the war started. They wouldn't let him. Right. He was too old, <laughs> and they needed him as a, as a guard, so... We grew up and then we moved to a farm. My, uh, my dad left the prison and bought a pile of rocks that he thought was a farm. Right. And we uh, grew up there. And where was the farm? Just outside of a city called Peterborough City at that time of about 50,000 people. And it was the standard brand family 100 acre farm. And where in, where in Canada is that for people like me? Yeah, if you can picture the Great Lakes on the map of yes, Canada. Right. We were in the, yeah, we were on the most easterly one, Lake Ontario. Oh, yeah. But we were 100 miles north of it. I'm now in Belleville, right on the shores of Lake Ontario. Really beautiful. What a stunning part of the world. And, and what was the farm? Well, it was a standard brand farm. We had chickens, geese, pigs, cows. You know, all of the things that you you did with a 100-acre farm in the in the late 40s, early 50s. 
But did, he, did your dad grow up on a farm? My yes, my dad actually quit school after grade eight. He was one. He was one of the most intelligent people I had ever known. He was the head of the Ontario Farmers Union, helped grow it, helped build it. My mother was a registered nurse, an RN, and uh, she ran a an obstetrics ward in the hospital. They we uh, we were working poor. Yeah, and brothers and sisters got one of each. I'm in the middle. I'm yeah. I got to protect my older sister and be an example to my younger brother. It was a very painful position to be in because I had to show the way on everything and mind her back while she while I was doing it. But that's the you know that wasn't my choice, but that's the way it worked out. So I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but um, no, not at all. When I was checking your email address this morning, I saw that it had a number in it, 1941, and I was right. <laughs> you told me that is your birth date. Yeah, I was born January 12, 1941. So you're still actively working, Michael. Like, this is this is an incredible journey. So I'm very excited to um, to get started. So here we are. You're, where did you study education? <laughs> <laughs> 1941. What? Okay, I got thrown out of two universities. I graduated from I did two others. So Yeah, and uh, tell us how that happened. How did you get thrown out? It's called Vietnam. Yeah, really. I was in Canada. Canada did not join that effort, but we did protest it. And I aided and abetted draft dodgers who came across the border. And I joined a group called Vietnam Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Yeah. And my department chair came into my office one day and she said to me, Michael, good graduate students at the University of Western Ontario do not have time to involve them things in, in, involve themselves in causes like the Vietnam War. And I turned around and I said, Mary, you need to get out of your Skinner box and look at a bigger world. <laughs> and just then, the Y exemption for for students was was they they let it go right. They 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 started to send students from the universities yeah. to the army they were drafting them right that's what caused the 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 huge amount of activity of people trying to get to canada and our department got specifically wonderful resumes from caltech and harvard and yale and princeton and you name it and so they decided they're going to take these kids and they were going to let us go Wow. So late in the year, they decided that the, the entry rate for the next year in the master's program was going to be 75%. If you couldn't didn't have a 75% across the board average, you weren't getting in. Well, 75% of our marks were already determined by then. Right. So in order to make the cut, you are going to have to raise your marks by a whole lot in a very little space. Right. So I took it to the dean, I took it to the, the chair, and I said to her, uh, you can't do this. She said, yeah, we can. <laughs> I said, no, you can't. I'll take you to the dean. She said, go ahead. I said, if that doesn't happen, I'll take you to uh, all the way up the level. I was considered radical. <laughs> I was okay. I had an 82% average. Yeah. So, you were so I would have made it. Except that once I started the campaign, for the others who were packing up their books and thinking of moving out, I said, whoa, hold on. You know, let's think about this. And the uh, the chair 
finally gave in. And on the next set of exams, my average dropped to down to 73%. Oh, really? Somehow. On one of them, I would have had to have got a mark of 12 out of 100 in order to have got the final mark that I was given. Incredible. And remind me, what year was this? <laughs> that was 1968. 68. And four of my professors got in a car and rode down the road to an, another university equally famous in Canada called University of Waterloo. And they told the chair what should happen there. And he offered me not entrance into a, a master's program, but direct entrance into a doctoral program with a grant that was $10,000 more per year than anyone was getting at the school that I'd just been thrown out of. Right. So, so here you are with a degree in education at this point? No, I was doing a master's degree in, in behavioral psychology. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. And like, who was at the university, at that first university, was there anyone sort of well-known in the field at the time that influenced you? Not really. It was a young department, Yeah. but uh, Waterloo was different. Dick Walters was the, was the chair at the time. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he had did a lot of work in social behavior. And, uh, oh, there were a couple of others that were notables. So he was recruited into a PhD program, and so you started in that program? Yeah, I did. And, and what was your PhD? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't get one. Yeah, I know, but what, what did, did you start? Yeah, I started, and then uh, I got all my comps out of the way, got all my coursework out of the way, and basically told my supervisor that I didn't want to work for the next three years on the research grant that I helped him to get. Yeah. And he immediately turned against me and said, oh, well, there are a couple of things you you don't have. You got a degree in philosophy. We don't think you have enough background in behavioral psychology to to be in a a doctoral program. So we're going to have an exam. So I just finished my comps. They set an exam that was supposed to be an eight-hour written exam like the comprehensives and I kept asking for a reading list and three weeks later one week before the exam was to happen I got an 8,000 page reading list what (laughs) so yeah so then uh, I showed up uh, for the exam I figured I had nothing to lose they forgot to come and then they my supervisor showed up sometime around lunch and said, oh, was that today? I said, yeah, it happens to be. He said, oh, well, we'll have to do it tomorrow. We won't do it as a written exam because I haven't had time to make up the questions, so we'll just do it as an oral. Oh, and by the way, Dr. Breidenbaugh will be joining the, uh, the, the committee, the, search, uh, the uh, exam committee. And Dr. Breidenbaugh's field was uh, in tests and measurements, and none of the readings were about tests and measurements. So it looked like the fix was in. And Martha Breidenbaugh came to me that afternoon. She said, Michael, I can't fight these people. I'm not expecting you to, Mother. She said, they'll fire me. They'll get rid of me. And uh, I need this job. And I said, right. And what she said was, you've worked with my son. She had a son who was challenged. And I taught him how, I taught him some life skills. I taught him things like how to shave and things like that. And she said, Michael, I can't fight this with you, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you two questions. And here's what I want you to answer. 
And then I can say he has answered my questions. I'm satisfied. And, you know, we get it. Well, the next day they showed up an hour late. We did a, a two-hour oral exam. She asked me the two questions. I gave her the two answers. And they decided they had to go for lunch. So they couldn't tell me that I was in or out at the time. And they rolled back in around 2.30. And my supervisor said, I, I hate to tell you this, but you are no longer a graduate student in good standing at University of Waterloo. Well, what do you think the issue was? I didn't want to spend three years of my life doing research to make him an assistant professor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got you. So you're you're someone that doesn't accept no. <laughs> so uh, what happened next? I uh, went skiing in Switzerland for the year. Oh yeah, good thinking. <laughs> <laughs> then I came back and uh, got a, a a job at a co- community college that was just starting up. Right. And it had been it was founded by several key people, but the key among them was a, a member, a former mayor of the city had become a member who was then the health minister. And this was to train students to work with uh, people who are intellectually challenged. And they had a new facility, a new college, and a new program. At that time, it fell under the realm of the Ministry of Health. Right. And this this fellow was the a minister of the Ministry of Health. And so we were, I went along working, working hard with them. And uh, in the second year, we got a memo saying that uh, you have to teach the legal aspects of the rights of the intellectually handicapped. And so I went looking for the legislation that pertained to it. And all I found was one article, which was the work for people or the legislation that governed people who had intellectual, not intellectual problems, but psychological problems. Yeah. What was the population? Like what was their age and and what was their presentation? They would have been, the the clients were all 18 to 30 years of age. They were all from the same little town. They were, by definition, they hired them. The residents were anywhere from 15 to 60. And they were moved into an old army camp that was there. And what had been the private married quarters became the new home for these people. They got them out of the being warehoused in a big facility in another city. So it was a great idea. What was the programming like for these people? (laughs) Well, they didn't know what a behaviorist was. Yeah, right. So I uh, basically, myself and a nurse were hired to build the program. Wow. And we were given three-week sessions or they would work in the classroom for three weeks and go, go on site for three weeks. And uh, we had the three weeks in between because they were supervised by other people when they were on, on the, at the facility. So we would use the next three weeks to generate the next piece of curriculum because there was no curriculum. Right. They hired us in, uh, on the Monday following the uh, Labor Day weekend and the students were st- st- two days later. Yeah. We just kept ahead of them. Wow. And how did you decide what to teach? Well, uh, some of it was laid down, but some of it we just ignored. Uh, The nurse did all of her things, all the health-related things, medical and all of drugs and all of that. She she had a relatively clearer path. I had worked with retarded people, with what were then called retarded people. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they needed self-help and I knew what they, you know, they needed language skills. And we just 
took, we, we looked at what they needed and we built programs around. And what did you draw from then? Another uh, chance to walk out of somewhere yeah. or get thrown out. Yeah. The uh, minister, we got this mandate to teach the legal rights of these people. I couldn't find anything. So I went through the act, the only act I could find. And, and then at the end of it, I critiqued it. And the next day, my student showed up with a get well card, and it was addressed to the Minister of Health. They asked if I was going to sign it, and I said, sure. And it said, dear sir, we've read your legislation, and we hope you're getting better. <laughs> and we, we sent it off to him. Well, that did not go down well. And the next day, my supervisor walked in, and he had smoke coming out his ears. The dean tried to fire me. Uh, immediately on the spot. I said, go ahead. I'll tell you to the newspapers. I'll make you look like an idiot. So he backed off. The next day, a friend of mine and I went to Toronto and we went to the legislature and we broke into meetings of all kinds of people until they threw us out. But by the time, every time that happened, the minister of that particular part of the government, whether it was labor or colleges and universities or health, whatever, would call the college and talk to the president. And they had one question, what the hell is going on down there? So by the time we got back, they were ready to negotiate. Right. So we negotiated uh, a penalty for me. And uh, six three months later, I left. I was already doing some consulting in the local school district. So I left and joined the, the local school board. And that's when I met Eric Hawk. Uh-huh. And Eric and I got together and we could see the fit between direct instruction and precision teaching. So tell me, what was, what was Eric Horton doing then? He was uh, like me. He was a uh, behavioral psychologist, seconded to the district and placed on a team of specialists to help kids who were, were expected to scrape them off the walls. Yeah, wow. And, and tell us a little bit about him. What, what was he like as a, as a person? <laughs> uh, he was he was most one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Uh, <laughs> Eric had only one flaw, and we used to call it hot in time. Eric could never get anywhere on time. <laughs> really? Right. <laughs> <laughs> He'd just get wrapped up in something, and time just disappeared. Yeah. But he was yeah. one of the most ingenious people I've ever met. He's right out up there, up there on a scale with Zig Engelman, Og Lindsley, Fred Skinner. He would, he would have blown the place apart. And I would have done all I could to help him. <laughs> so, yeah. But he was completely fearless. Yeah. We walked into those classrooms and we, we had two superintendents who defended us. They, they knew we were doing good things and there were four superintendents and the other two just stayed away because they didn't want to tangle with our two. Uh, and then one of them retired and the other got a directorship of a of a school board, and we were naked. And within six months, we were gone. Okay, so remind me what year we are. Uh, this would be 1975 to 1978, nine. Yeah, okay. So we, so this is well into the chart. And oh yeah, how long had Eric been there? Eric uh, stayed, for, well, he lasted for four years, and then he got cancer. Yeah, wow, well, four years. So and he died a year later. You knew him four years? I, yeah, it was a very, very short four years, yeah, sadly, but very sad. we were very close. Yeah, right. So had you known anything about precision tech so, or the chart or had you come in contact yeah, with I, I, work? I had 
been exposed to the chart by a fellow that I taught a co-taught a course with, a fellow named Dr. Ray Peters from Queens University, which is 50 miles east of me here. Yeah. Uh, but he presented it as a lecture, the way most people do. He he didn't have a chart uh, of his own, and that's that's always a division I make. Like uh, you have you have your own data. Yeah, I think that's the first question you asked me when I met you. Are you taking data yeah. on yourself? Yeah. <laughs> I was qualifying you. <laughs> yeah, luckily, <laughs> luckily I've been mentored by some awesome people that helped me do that. Well, yeah. Why doesn't every, every behaviors do that? Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm skeptical of people who don't keep some kind of data on themselves. I mean, physician, heal thyself. Yeah, I think... Um, Kendra Newsom says, you've got to live it to give it. I like that. Okay, that's a beautiful phrase. I'm going to steal that. It's so Reno, I feel. I haven't even been to Reno, yeah. but it feels Reno to me. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I love it. I, I use that every day. So, oh, this is so great. Thank you so much for doing this. This is just filling in so many pieces. So, so you, this is the first time you come in contact with the chart. Tell me how this unfolds. You meet Eric. <laughs> he says, how did it start? Well, uh, Elizabeth was teaching in a classroom of, of kindergarten grade one kids. Okay. And we, we decided that they needed to learn how to chart. So we, we taught her student. So Elizabeth is using precision. Eric's teaching. wife. Yeah. And, and using precision teaching in the classroom. Is this the first time you've seen? Yeah. She, she, Eric had taught Elizabeth precision teaching when they were out in the West Coast. Yeah. And uh, Elizabeth was using in her classroom as any good teacher would. Yeah. And we decided that we needed to teach these kids, and we got that done. And we, I was teaching them language, uh, the Language One program, and I had had Zig in a couple of times for a week at a time, and I, we hired two of his follow-through people, Linda Olin and Linda Youngmeyer, as people to put on these support teams so we could spread the work out more. Okay, so tell us how you met Zig. And what he was doing at the time. <laughs> oh, my God, girl. You have some wonderful questions. Okay. I started working for the school board. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I was working with a guy named Frank Tate. Frank loved everything we did. Right. He was a superintendent. He had lots of power and no, no sense of fear. So I got a call from the first thing. I knew I had to make a name for myself in the board in a hurry. So I went to a school for, for children who were uh, intellectually challenged, and they had three aides who did nothing but look after these kids' needs in terms of diapering and you know bathroom and life skills and all of that. So I said to the principal, would you like to have these people doing something more useful like te teaching language? He said, I'd love it. So I trained one of the three who then taught the other two under my supervision, and we used the what's the the toileting program by Fox Azrin. Oh yeah, Nathaniel Azrin and and Fox, and yeah. uh, within three weeks we had all those kids trained. Yeah, and so people looked around and said, "Oh my, oh my God, this guy's got something. I want a piece of that." So one of the principals came to me and said, "I got a, a real wild child in my my school. Can you help me?" I said, sure, but here's the deal. You got to cover the classroom for that teacher for one hour every time I visit so that I'm not coming here to stick a patch on this thing. I want her trained uh, so that when I'm gone, she can continue. Yeah. 
And so I, he made the deal and I showed up every week for three hours a week and worked with the teacher and the kid. And what did you teach her? Where did you start? Uh, I started getting the kid under control. Yeah, but how did, what did you teach the teacher? <laughs> well, I started with behavior management and I taught her uh, very simply uh, how to run a classroom. And so basically what it came down to was this kid could stand about 10 minutes yeah. and then he'd do something, he'd go offline and he'd get kicked out. And then he'd get sent to the principal's office and the principal would sit him on a chair and tell him to stay there. And 10 minutes later, he'd be wandering the halls. So then they call his mom to come and get him. And this went on, he was in trouble on the bus. He was in trouble in the cafeteria, recess, the gym. It doesn't matter where you took him. He, he'd last 10 minutes and he, so they asked me to get that under control. Well, I did what any good behaviorist would do. I went to the research st stacks and looked for, you know, a system that would work. And I ran into a uh, research article called The Good Behavior Clock. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that article. It was written by a guy named Ed Kubani at the University of Florida, or sorry, the University of Hawaii. And basically what happened was uh, this child became the centerpiece of the classroom because he was the only one that could earn points. And they could use the points. They made a list of things they wanted and the teacher would agree to. And when they got enough points, they got a movie. But he was the only one who could earn the points. So instead of trying to get him into trouble, they spent a lot of time to keep him out of trouble. And this kid turned on, he was a king. And it was the first thing he could do, right? So he turned on a dime and became a model student. Wow. Inappropriate behavior dropped to zero in like three days. So everyone's thrilled. Teacher's happy. Principal's happy, mom's happy, bus driver's happy. And then one day, about three weeks after that, I wandered down between the classroom, the aisles in the classroom, watching the students working on a homework, seat work exercise on math problems, word problems. And they'd been on this for about 10 minutes. And I walked down beside his desk and his book was open, his scribbler was open, his pencil was in his hand. And there wasn't a mark on the page. And I said to him, what's wrong? Is this hard? And he looked at me and said, yeah, I mean, 12-year-old kid, right? Yeah. He said, yeah. I said, well, what's hard about it? I'll help you. He said, some of the words. I said, okay, well, point them out. I'll read them for you. And he looked up at me with his big brown eyes. And he said, it's all of them. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. That was, I got gut punched right there. Oh. Um, yeah. I walked out the door, I went and went back to the stacks and started looking at how do you teach a kid to read? What's the research say, right? And up came project follow through. Oh, wow. Right. So I got on a plane, I flew to Eugene, Oregon. I walked into Zay Engelman's office as if I belonged there. <laughs> and I said, hi, I'm Michael Maloney, I'm from Ontario. I know you know how to teach kids to read. I have kids who are, need to learn to read, and I'm not leaving until you teach me how. And <laughs> he said to me, you, "You like love to knock down doors. I love this. Yeah, keep going." Well, uh, Zig turned to me. He said, third door on the right. Her name's Linda." Right. <laughs> so I went and knocked on the third door on the right, and it was Linda Olin, then known as Linda Garcia, right. and she was brilliant, and she taught me to be a good direct instruction teacher and trainer. And the next year we hired her, brought her to, to Belleville. You stayed in contact with her. Did, how did you get 
your training started? <laughs> By sitting around with Zig and Linda and have, bringing Zig in here to Hastings County right. more than once yeah. and having Linda here at my side teaching kids. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was brutal. It was so much fun. <laughs> and this little boy, did you teach him to read? That, he's the one I started with. Yeah. I, the first yeah. class, the group I set up was with him as a grade eight student. Wow. Right. And yeah, he learned. Cheapers. Did you, did you stay in contact with him? What became of him? No, uh, I did not because I was too busy starting other groups. And, yeah. you know, like there's too many fish out there that need to get thrown back into the water. So, you know. Okay. So here you are. This is, you've already seen precision teaching being implemented in the classroom, in Elizabeth's classroom. Yeah. Now you have come in contact with the power of direct instruction. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were you the first person that combined those two? Yes. Right. Three, not two, three. Behavior analysis. Yeah. Direct instruction, precision teaching. Okay. One to get them in their seats. Thank you, Fred. Fred Skinner. Yeah. One to teach them. Thanks. Thank you very much, Og. Or sorry, Zig. And one to measure whether or not it worked. Thanks, Og. Yeah. Og's name. So here you are developing your own program, combining these incredible. Oh, no, we didn't develop much. I mean, we just tacked precision teaching onto direct instruction. Yeah. Picked the pinpoints and ran the fluency checks. Yeah, right. It was a cobbled up package. Yeah. But it worked brilliantly. Yeah. So were you in a classroom at this stage? No, I had 10 different schools that I went to. Right. Half day each over five days. Okay. And you're working for the ministry at this point? Uh, no, I'm working for the school board. The school board. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. The right. district. And was there anyone in, in the school? that saw what you were doing and realized how pioneering this was? Yeah, my supervisor, my superintendent, Frank Tate. Okay. And uh, Eric's superintendent, Wally Beaver. Right, got it. But Frank retired and Wally became a director of a different system. Right. Now we have no political coverage. Right. We got whacked. Yeah, how long, how long were you in this position? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Gosh. <laughs> I'm just trying to I'm just trying to imagine how this all unfolded. I'm imagining that you're working very, very hard. You're drawing upon teachers that are, are, are motivated to, to learn this system. They're seeing the effects of it. How did you pull together a teaching program and how many teachers would have been impacted by it? Probably 10% of the ones that were in the schools yeah. at any given time. Was it a no, it was not it was not something they wanted. Yeah. Because it was more work. You know, if you if you're running a classroom with 25 kids, you're going to teach the same DI lesson three times in a 45 minute period, right? As opposed to walking up and down between the aisles and working with individual kids. Yeah. And there's no accountability. Yeah. You're not going to get fired if a third of these kids don't learn to read this year. Yeah. In fact, you're going to get rewarded. You're going to get another contract. You're going to get another year of pension. You're going to get a raise. You're going to get two months off in the summer. You know, there's there's just no accountability in the system, and it doesn't it doesn't start and end with the teachers. It goes all the way to the top. Did did teachers like? Well, I think you've answered that question anyway. But you found teachers that obviously did like what you were showing them. Oh, the, yeah, the good ones would. They, you could they couldn't get enough. They were great, but yeah. that that's not enough to to get us out of the problem. So, what curricula were you using? 
then? Did Zig have a scoping sequence? Well, first of all, they didn't like direct instruction because it was structured. Yeah. You have to remember, this is the whole period of the whole child. Educate the whole child. This is the, you know, the frothy educational method that has no data and no direction. Yeah. So back then, did Zig have a curricula for, for reading and... Oh, absolutely. And what else? Oh, yeah. Direct instruction had... Uh, the decoding series, the comprehension series, the spelling series, the math series. Yeah. 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 And so was he producing the materials? Where were they coming from? The SRA, Science Research okay, Associates, right. were the were his publisher. Yeah, right. They were bought by McGraw-Hill. Yeah. And yeah. now they've been bought again by Nelson. And every time they, they get bought and sold, the prices double. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So why is it? Michael, I'm jumping a bit here, but because having learnt direct instruction and using it myself, you know, it's a it's a beautiful way to teach. Why would teachers so resistant to it? Do you think? Because it cha- it's, it causes change. Yeah. And and the boards, you know, first of all, the teacher preparation, tech, you know, systems do not teach them, so it's completely foreign to these teachers. Just like they don't teach the chart. You can't go to, you can barely find an educational institution that teaches the chart or that teaches direct instruction, or for that matter, even does a good job of teaching behavior analysis. Yeah. I mean, I see these graduates and they got master's degrees and they're BCBAs and 28% of them had ever used either direct instruction or precision teaching. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Back to that. That's a, that's. I have a lot of questions on that area. So let's go back. Here you are having spent uh, three and a half years in the school system, doing the best you can to educate teachers. Did you teach um, teachers to chart? Oh, yeah. The ones that would be willing to do so, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. And so three and a half years, how many teachers are you impacting, do you reckon, at this point in time? Oh, between Eric, myself, and Elizabeth, yeah. I would say a couple hundred. Yeah, wow. Okay. But this, uh, there's a couple of thousand in the board. Yeah. Okay, so... It, you know, you're, you're, you're not winning. <laughs> Goodness. And how did you guys stay in contact back then? We were living six miles from one another. Right. We saw, we saw each other. I was in, in a different part of the county. We have a very large geographical county here. It's like thousands of square kilometers. Right. And the schools are spotted all around them. And uh, so we just, we socialized together. We went to conferences together. We organized uh, one situation where we could get Og Lindsley and Zay Engelman on the same stage uh, at an international ABBA conference in Chicago one year, you know. And when did you first meet Og? I met Og through Eric uh, at a, the, in Milwaukee at the second ABA conference. Right. And I met Skinner the same day. We walked into the hotel. Og was in the lobby. Yeah. And Eric said, come on, you got to go. You got to meet Og. So we trotted over to meet Og and uh, we had a short conversation. And of course, interrupted by 11 other people coming <laughs> to get Og at the same time yeah. as these people are. And uh, he Og grabbed me. He says, hey, I, I want you to introduce, I want to introduce you to Fred. Right. So he hauls me over and there's Dr. Skinner. And I said, well, you know that Og was Skinner's graduate student, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, 
Og introduced me and, and I said, Dr. Skinner, it's such an honor to meet you. And he said, the name's Fred. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I mean, yeah. all of these people were the same. There was little pomp and ceremony. There was like, you know, we're here to do something important. So Was Og speaking at the conference? Oh, he spoke at every conference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Several. So did, we all did. There, there was a shortage at that point. There wasn't enough speakers to keep things going, to grow at the, the rate it was growing. So, yeah, well, Hank could do two or three presentations. Uh, Abby would do a bunch. You know, everybody that was there got tagged to do a whole bunch of things. And how much of the conference back then was, you know, precision teaching based? Not much. Not much. Yeah. So not much has changed. <laughs> not much was DI based. Yeah. And when we put Zig and and Og together on a stage, yeah, with like four hundred people in a ballroom, we thought we were going to see the marriage of DI and PT. Yeah, because we had yeah. we had a whole that was at, at that point I was running my school. We had uh, precision teaching data on direct instruction uh, lessons of based on twenty kids in every subject across the board. Wow. <laughs> For a whole year. Yeah. yeah and so uh, Annie Desjardins, who was my key teacher, I said, Annie, I want you to present it. And she said, oh, okay. <laughs> she was all of about 22. And uh, she, uh, I, I was supposed to be the chair as, and Eric was supposed to be the discussant. Annie was presenting the data and Og and Sig are sitting there and I walked up to the mic and said, uh, hi, I'm Michael Maloney, uh, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, today, we're going to introduce you to Og Lindsley and uh, Zig Engelman, and it's going to be a report on the data from our classroom of 20 special needs kids on the subjects available. And so uh, Annie got, and I went and sat down. That was yeah. it. It took me less than a minute. Just to remind so which school is this now, Michael? So you've moved into a school. It's called Quinty, it was called Quinty Learning Center. Okay. Yeah, Quinty's the region that I live in. Yeah. Was it a primary school? Or? Yeah, private school. Private primary school. Yeah. Private for-profit primary school. Right. Okay. Elementary, not necessarily primary. And obviously, Annie came in contact with well-known, right? She was my student. Yeah. So she was your student. And she was at Loyalist College when I was teaching there. Right. She, she was trained to work with uh, children and adults who were intellectually challenged and she and I became very close friends. Oh nice. What was she like? Oh wonderful. Soft, gentle, smart, wow. risk taking. She could make you laugh at your worst period. Is she alive? Uh you know, she's had a very serious disease for a number of years. Oh. And the last two times I've called, it's gone to voicemail. Right. And I really don't feel that I should intrude because yeah. I yeah. Yeah, so he, so you sit down at this conference. She gets up and presents the data. Yeah, I, Annie gets up and explains the chart, uh, the the charted data, and then she sat down. And Eric came up to the mic and he said, uh, "Og Zig, would you care to comment?" And he went and sat down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone told us, don't put them together. They'll fight like cats and dogs. They've got egos the size of the moon. We said, okay, well, let's, uh, let's have a good bar fight then. 
Yeah. Right. And they got along like, you know, peaches and cream. <laughs> they were very gentle with each other, but yeah. straightforward. Yeah. Were you calling the system anything at this stage? Uh, no. No, I, I didn't lay I didn't even label it. It was labeled by one of the primary homeschool practitioners, a woman who has a magazine called Practical Homeschooling. Right. Mary Pride. Yeah. She called it the Maloney Method when she interviewed me and put my face on the cover of her magazine. Right. What year was that? Oh gosh, fifteen years ago. Yeah, right. Okay, so back then. Here you are drawing upon these technologies. You presented this conference. What happened after that? Uh, not enough. Yeah. A lot of the PT people adopted DI. Yeah. But relatively few of the people, of the, the DI people, went to the chart. So it, it, it was basically a stillborn event. Yeah. What about Zig? Even though it had 400 people. Was Zig impacted by the chat? No, I don't think so. Yeah. If he did, he didn't. He, he certainly didn't put a lot of effort into, into helping it. No. Okay. And so what sort of data would they take? Percent correct. Yeah. Okay. Block tests, percent correct. Yeah. Which is not a behavior. Yeah. So that you must have had people that came along for the journey. Yeah. Well, all kinds of things happened. Uh, yeah. From all my school ran for three years, and then computers came into the school. Right. And I could see my kids, when they came to me, they looked different, acted different, right? And we're wiping out those differences so they can go back to a regular classroom, and they're going to be the only kid in that classroom that doesn't know what a computer is. Right. So we bought computers, put them in the classroom. Couldn't find anything to run on them, so innocently started writing a program called Mighty Math. And Mighty Math was a success, especially in Utah, where there were some precision teaching people there. And it did basic facts in all four of the functions of, of arithmetic. Who wrote the program? And I did. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, well, the, the coding and all of the hard work yeah. was done by a then 17-year-old grade 11 student that I, or a 16 year old grade 11 student that I hired. He built his own computer out of parts wow. when he was 10. Wow. And he was, he'd forgotten more than I, than I have ever learned about computers. And we're working together right now. Right. Today. Wow. So he's the guy that built the program that works on a cell phone in the slums of Bangladesh. Oh my goodness. So you sent me a photo this morning of, um, we were talking about how a picture tells a thousand words of a guy, mm -hmm. presumably illiterate. So, so let's just finish up there. So you were, what happened after you left the school? Well, I, I decided that we could help more kids if I could put that out as software yeah, and sell it rather than taking kids, 20 kids at a time. Yeah. Let's go for 20,000. So we did that. Did you start your own program then? Yeah. Okay. And, and like, how did you market that to schools? <laughs> well, we started going to teacher conferences. And when you say we, Michael, who was it then? When you say we, was that I or was it? Uh, no, I, I, I have been blessed with so many incredible people. Yeah. I hired a young lady who had just finished her degree in English and she became my marketing manager 
And what she didn't know about marketing, I never needed to know. Right. She was just a natural at it. And she was sweet as honey and tough as nails. Right. She took on a, she actually took on a, one of the labor unions in New Jersey when they didn't want to set up our, our tight, our, you know, we had a, we had a very special way of distributing our information and, and putting it in the uh, porch or the, you know, the box that it came in. And, yeah. And the guy didn't want to do it. And so she said, oh, that's good. You couldn't do it anyway. <laughs> and so she went and got it and did it. And that was just her. Yeah. She could, yeah, she wanted, she tried to talk him into it and uh, he wouldn't have any of it. And so she just took it over. So what was the business called then? Uh, Quinny Learning Center. Right. Okay. Got it. And so how many schools purchased your materials? Yeah. Well, we, at that point, the school closed because I couldn't run the school and develop the software and market at the same time because we were going to conferences all over North America. So I closed the school and started working on the software, continued working on the software. And we were in Arizona at a conference and this gentleman showed up from Scholastic. I don't know if you're familiar with Scholastic. Yeah. Okay. He wanted us to come to New York so they could negotiate a deal with us and we blew him off. And so the next conference, uh, the next higher level functionary from Scholastic showed up until finally the president showed up. Wow. And he wasn't taking a no for an answer. (laughs) So we went to New York, cut a deal, got, you know, tons of money to develop it. Uh, We hired a team, Michael Summers, the the 16-year-old, now 20-year-old, led the team of five programmers. And we created eight packages uh, in uh, software for math functions from uh, addition up through ratios and equations, they're ready to start algebra. And uh, we had a deal where they put up the money, uh, the front end of the money, and we gave them product in a certain on a certain date. And uh, it covered the waterfront. So the first one, Michael finished it, and we tested it, and we sent it out. And the next day, I got a call from the president, uh, Robinson, and he said, what are you sending me this for? And I said, uh, Dick, it's a uh, it's due date. It's deliverable date is today. That's why it's on your desk. I said, oh, so you expect me to fix all the bugs in it? And I said, uh, Dick, my team has just spent two weeks trying to break this. Have a go at it. See if you can break it. And I hung up the phone. The next time he called me, he said, I want my team to come up and see how your team is doing this. Because we delivered eight out of eight on time and on budget in the software world back then. Yeah. We were working in a hundred year old brick, you know, defunct school in two rooms. Wow. We didn't want Scholastic to see this. Yeah. Was it just math, Michael, at this point? Yeah, it was all math, the first part. Yeah. Yeah. So Andrea convinced them they shouldn't fly to Toronto, then drive to Belleville, then drive back to Toronto and, and fly home. We should meet them in Toronto at a hotel. We could have them lunch you know, make the presentation, do what we need to do, have them back on a three o'clock flight and the home for dinner. See, that's the kind of brilliance she had. <laughs> yeah. And they bit for it. So we met at the Constellation Hotel just beside the airport. They were back on the plane by three o'clock, all our questions answered, all of that ready to go. 
and they didn't really see anything because what are you going to do? Watch somebody at a keyboard? Yeah. But we did tell them how it was developing, where it came from, why it was working, all of that. And we became their leading line of mass software. And what sort of data did you have on the impact of this program? Just, uh, well, from them, very little because they only collected sale data, sales data. They didn't collect, although they've had the capacity to, to collect uh, fluency data. Yeah. They didn't use it. The right. teachers didn't use it. Yeah. And what did it look like in the classroom when kids were using your program? Was it just part of the math? Well, by that time, there were, prob- there were, there were labs. They weren't classrooms. They, the classroom computer hadn't really hit big. So they were in labs, if you recall yeah. back. Yeah. in the eight, late 80s and you your class went to the class to the uh, computer room and sat down and did your work for that 45 minute period yeah uh, all the reports we ever got were scintillatingly good yeah because you know it's direct instruction and precision teaching i mean come on so were the teachers using direct instruction while the kids were doing their math facts and stuff like was it was it a combined program well, it, it had the capacity for them to take a measurement, but most of them didn't. Yeah, right. So they're there. I mean, they're teachers. So they're never, tra- they're not trained in this. Then Scholastic sold off its software division. Right. And we had, a, as part of the arrangement I made with them, and I would suggest you do this for anyone you know who's doing software. If they sold off the software or their division or sold off their rights, uh, all rights to, uh, math tutor came back to me. Right. And does that program still exist? It did until Windows 10 started. Right. It ran for more than 20 years. Wow. And when 10, Windows 10 came into being, it was the first time that a platform change affected our program and it died in its tracks. Yeah. So you're still, at this point, you're still going to conferences, staying in contact. Eric had sadly passed away. Did you, mm-hmm. did you remain in contact with Elizabeth? Still do. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I talked Elizabeth into doing a, a two-hour seminar with Terry Harris, who was a student of hers okay. 40 years ago. And uh, it was on, be, you know, the behavior development solutions. Uh, and it was a special. I've been doing webinars and podcasts for people as much as I can. Yeah. And many of the people who show up are, are, are BCBAs and RBTs. And they don't know about precision teaching and they don't know about direct instruction. So I've been doing those, but they also had some other holes in their skills. So I've pulled in some specialists. Like they need someone with more speech capacity. So I got Michelle Bossi to do a presentation of her program in speech because she uses a standard acceleration chart with every kid. And she doesn't see kids for an hour at a time. She sees them three times for 20 minutes across the day. So by by Christmas time, half of her caseload is gone because they don't need her anymore. So I got her to do that one. I got Elizabeth to do one on, on handwriting because as she says, Terry, taught her how to learn handwriting because he had uh, cerebral palsy yeah. and she had to work with him and his limitations. And it taught her a whole lot about the whole motoric behavior of handwriting. And so I got her to do that one. 
And then Jonathan Amy is a specialist in um, motion, movement, mobility. Yeah. And I got him and <laughs> her name's going to escape me now. Uh, it'll come back to me. But any case, well, it's one of the problems being being 81 years old <laughs> is you can't always remember uh, everyone's names. And I, there's so many of them. Any case, uh, he has, uh, they've been working on uh, speech using the motoric aspects of it to forget the lips and tongue and jaw. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's marvelous work. And they're getting really good results. Yes. They did a presentation at IPTC, didn't they, a couple of years ago, which I saw as well mm -hmm. on the oral motor. Jonathan, uh, oh, this woman, what's, it's so frustrating when you can't remember things. Is she Welsh? I don't know. Okay. She's American. Oh, she runs the uh, a learning center and a school in uh, Florida, and it's called the East Florida, uh, Eastern Florida Center for Autism Center. Right, right, right. I think I know who it is. Yeah. She's changed her name recently, so uh, that's part of the reason I can't remember it. Okay. But in It'll any case, yeah. Shelly. Shelly, got it. Okay. So we've been doing that round. Uh, this We've done two rounds of that with all of them and I keep in touch with Elizabeth just as a matter of course, because why wouldn't I? Yeah. You, and anybody would. So let's go back. So one of the questions I haven't asked you is how you influenced Morningside's program. How did you, <laughs> oh first, did you, you first, you have done your homework. Where did you first meet Kent? Cause we jumped a couple okay. of different there. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, again, uh, Nine, I started my learning center. 1980, it turned into a school. Uh, Og Lindsley was pushing Carl and Kent and I and others to get out of the schooling business and get out into the real world. Okay, so for those people that don't have, uh, I'm, I'm, my audience comes from both ABA that may not know all of those names. So Kent Johnson. Okay. Yeah, so can we just label those people? So Carl Binder, obviously, Kent Johnson. People will know Carl Binder in all likelihood. Carl yes. uh, was a student of Fred Skinner's, left Harvard, went out and started working in business. And he has developed his own company called Six Boxes. And if anybody needs any help with organizing a business, he's the guy you call. Great. So, yeah. He's, he's brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Now, I met Carl through Eric because Carl did his thesis in our district, in our school district. And so we spent time together then, back when he, before he got his doctoral degree. Got okay. it. Uh, Ken Johnson is, uh, came to me as a function of being leveraged by Og Lindsley to, for anybody to get out of you know, the, this, the business of consulting to schools and get into the real world of uh, be, having a business, a private business, and serving a wider population. So Kent wandered by my place to see what it was all about at the behest of Ogden. And he saw what we were doing, and he said, I want one of those. Right. How old was, how old was Kent then? Oh, Kent would have been in his early 30s, I guess. He yeah. was teaching at uh, East, uh, East Oregon University. I, no, he, no, I'm wrong. No, it, he was in Seattle. He was in Seattle then. East Washington University. 
So he came to visit you in Canada? Yeah, he came to visit me because Og said, you got to go and see what Michael's doing. Okay. And so Kent shows up and uh, he just fell all over it because it was it was what he'd been dreaming about doing. Yeah. And so he went back and started Morningside. The only difference was he picked a little different population. He was looking for the group of kids who he he called them the, the lost 40%. Yeah. These are kids who... They don't need a whole lot of intervention, but they can't, they can't get ahead with what they've got. And so he set up Morningside and brought those kids in and it's done yeoman service for the last 50 years. Yeah. Well, so, and, and like, did you remain in contact with what he was doing and, and <laughs> well, what of he course. was learning? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm just trying to work out how you fitted this all in, Michael. This is a lot of stuff. Well, you know, I work hard, like most of us, and, uh, you know, like, I just... And you love what you do? I love what I do, and, and I have no intention of changing. <laughs> did, you go, did you go to Seattle and see what he was doing? I have never visited Morningside itself. Really? Kent and, and I usually meet at conferences, Yeah. and I sent Annie Desjardins, my best staff, out to Kent, Yeah. so she could implement the programs the way we were doing them. Yeah. She met... Tim Slocum and married him, and they then she moved on to her own learning center. Right. Some of the things that I read is that at some point Og said, you know, your likelihood of success in the school system is very low and encourage people to start their own learning centers. Is that? Yes. Yeah. I started 25 of them. 25. Talk to me about that. How do you start 25 centers? Because <laughs> I have one and a lot of great. <laughs> How do you start your own learning center? Well, uh, the way I started is I wait for someone to to look interested, and then I tell them, "Okay, I'll counsel you to get your business up and running." But the first thing you got to do is write a business plan. Yeah. Because if you don't, you know, if you're not writing a plan, then you're planning to fail. Mm-hmm. If you fail to plan, right. you're planning to fail. Yeah, a degree with no skills in how to start a business or grow a business. That's, or... that's the one I want. I don't want somebody who's a BCBA necessarily because they're already tarnished. If they've got you know percent on them on their minds and they've got discrete trials and you know that's good as far as it goes. And it was the best tool we had until fluency came along. One of my real stars right now is a woman who is living in Tennessee, and she took the course that I started at the University of West Florida five years ago, and then called me and said, I need some more information. My son Samuel is on the spectrum, and I didn't get enough out of the course to do everything I needed. She hired me to counsel her yeah. and to train her and to you know, supervise her. And of course, she is like the biggest sponge you ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> it all goes in. And she digests it and feeds it back to you, and it's marvelous. Yeah. So I had her, she and I did a session on language because her son is language deficient. And we did uh, the fourth of the four set of webinars we did for behavior development was first speech, then language, then motoric behavior for writing skills. And uh, what was the last one? Uh, Jonathan and, and uh, Shelley's. Right. And they're still available? Uh, I assume they've got them on podcasts. I will put a link to that and make sure that those, um, those are available to Good. people that want to learn more. 
So, um, so you've had a profound impact. Growing learning centers here, you had a profound impact on the commencement of Morningside, which has had a profound impact on students for a long period of time. Well, there's also the fluency factory. Yeah, talk to me about Richard that. McManus. Yeah, so talk to me about how you first met Richard because same way. Yeah, Richard wanted to. Yeah, he wanted to change and he wanted a, a learning center, so I helped him start it. Yeah, one- Ian and Aileen Spence, the same thing in West Hartford, Connecticut, with the Ben Browns Academy. Uh, and the list goes on. Yeah. So people reach out to you, you mentor them, teach them, start with a business plan. What's what's next in getting it? For those people that are, that are maybe some BCBAs that are listening to this as well. Okay. Well, we have a significant problem within our discipline. Yeah. We are not growing. Yes. Uh, we are not being effective. And we need to change that. And so... I've been kicking this around for 10 years, and I finally think I may have hit upon something. We need a solution to how to teach these technologies that is scalable and can be done remotely. Yeah. That's why I did the course for the West University of West Florida, because it was a six-piece course that covered the the six different pieces in what became the Maloney Method. And they were two-hour seminars with supervision. Those we have just rewritten. We've just redone. We launched them last week. Yeah. And they'll they'll be available through BDS and on our website as well on Maloney Method. Essentially, until we can do things that people don't have to go sit and listen to somebody. Yeah. And, and get involved with what I call drive-by consulting because you never see the guys again. There's no follow-up. There's no accountability. You know, the teachers spend six, seven, eight days a year going to these things, and, and I don't think it impacts them very much at all. Okay. Maybe this is a good point to talk about some pretty scary numbers that you uh, shared with me about literacy mm-hmm. rates in the States and your goal for impacting more teachers, more students. Talk to me about the numbers that you sent me in an email that, you know. Well, these are United States Department of Education figures, and uh, it demonstrates very clearly that we're not moving the stakes on literacy at all. Uh, Everyone talks about it, but all the data is anecdotal, right? It's all percent-based tests or some kind of weird test score. It's not behavior. And so basically, we are being sold a bill of goods that this is, this is really, uh, we're moving forward on literacy. No, we're not. We've got 10 million children enrolled in public schools in the United States who are illiterate today. Incredible. Yeah. And what's happening? I don't blame the teachers. If you gave the teachers the, the opportunity to learn these skills, which they've never had, they would do a much better job. If they learn direct instruction only, they do a good job. If they pair that with fluency of precision teaching, they do an excellent job. But the United States government is working directly against them. There is a group called the What Works Consortium, and they are the ones who disseminate all of the information on educational projects to states and districts across the United States. Well, about five years ago, they quit adding anything that was direct instruction, precision teaching, or behavior analysis. They don't disseminate that anymore. 
So how are teachers supposed to get trained when that is no longer available to them? Well, it's not just teachers, is it? Because look at the task list for BCBAs. It's, it's not there. Precision yeah. teachers are no longer there. And I think maybe it's yeah. not up to date, but it, it used to be use direct instruction, I think, is one of the items on the task list. But the other side is that many of the children will never get to do that because the insurance companies control what is going to get funded in any child's plan. Yeah. And the bottom line is that anything that the schools do gets left off the list. They're not funded. So Yes, this is this is a big problem in Australia too because we have a, an insurance scheme here called the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Yeah. And anything that smells like education or academics cannot be funded for kids with a disability. Yeah, absolutely. Which means they yeah. assume that schools know how to teach kids with severe, you know, behavioral challenges how to read. They're assuming they're assuming they know the schools know how to teach most kids. Yeah, that's you know, forget about kids. I mean, the bottom line is 65% of our kids are going to be fine. They will go through the system and they'll be okay. I've got four grandchildren that are burning up the, ta- the track. They'll never need a special needs unless they get hit by the bus or something. Yeah. But the bottom line is one third of the kids, fully one third, the, the 35 to 40% that Ken Johnson talks about do need it and they're not getting it. And the pipeline to prison is not a myth. Talk to me about that. What does that mean? A student drops out of high school in the United States every 42 seconds. Oh, my goodness. And they're usually 16, 15, somewhere in there. They drop out of school. They can't read. They're illiterate. They can't can't be trained because you need to be able to read in order to follow the instructions for training. They can't fill out the forms. They can't apply. They're done. So what do they do? They go out and, you know, heist something. And we have proof that we can change that. My friend Carmen Marcy, who is a PhD, moved to Chicago because she was offered an opportunity to work with some hard-to-deal-with kids. The whole area, uh, which part of the county, it'll come back to me, took all of 16 high schools, they picked all the bad apples, took them out, put them in one school, and then gave that school to Carmen Marcy to run. Carmen hired Linda Olin. Mm-hmm. It was Cook County. Yeah. In Cook County in Chicago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was asked to come in and teach them precision teaching. Linda was going to look after the direct instruction. I was going to look after the precision teaching. Carmen was already new book. So she took on this group of kids. And the day before I was there, one kid pulled a gun on another one in the classroom. The two days before that, Two other kids walked into a variety store and pointed a gun at the, I mean, how smart do you have to be to less than a block from the school to pull a gun on a cashier in a, in a variety store, right? So it was a tough, tough. And I got there and I said to them, I'm not teaching anything until I've taught a kid. Because if you don't see me doing it, yeah, you're not going to believe that I can so they had a kid in double lockup. <laughs> I went down to the double lockup and he's sitting there and he's got a mean on. And I, I said, hey, buddy, did you have breakfast? Because I thought he probably hadn't. He said, no. I said, well, it's getting close to noon. You must be getting hungry. Said, yeah, I am. I said, well, I'll tell you what. If we can finish this in the next 15 minutes, I'll get you lunch. Well, I, I was teaching him morphographic spelling. Yeah. Direct instruction spelling program. Well, of course, 
he just ate it up. I mean, he he wanted lunch. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't care if he learned to spell as much, but lunch was a big deal. Yeah. Carmen Marcy reduced the recidivism rate to the courts by 75% over three years oh. by running this school. Yeah. Cook County shut it down. Why? Because it was working. Yeah. You know, why do these institutes want us not to be there? Because we cause disruption. They want steady as she goes. There's no problem for them if things are steady as they goes, but there's a lot of collateral damage. I mean, where do you think kids fit on the list of priorities of a school district? I'm scared. People think they're first. They're not. What is? What is the priorities? Budget, one. State regulations, two, my own well-being, three, four, unions. I mean, we can go all the way down the list and and about number seven, you're going to find kids. So, Michael, I think, is there a solution? Is there a way forward? Yeah, of course there is. What is the way forward? We've got the solution. I mean, first of all, 65% of the kids are going to be just fine. Okay? Okay. We could carry on with that and we can run both of these countries of ours on 65% brain power. Okay. So economically and socially, it's not going to be a problem. And the other side is the 35% that are in trouble, that are illiterate, they're the next generation of welfare cases, prisoners. They're going to run up the hospital bills with drugs and other things. They're a necessary population. I mean, that sounds kind of cynical, I know, but the bottom line is, Where do you go if these kids are all being successful? Social workers are going to get chopped. You know, social services are going to get shortened because they're not needed. So it's it's not a pretty picture. But it's going to happen anyway. Whether governments want them to or not, the science is going to step in. It's already happening. Uh, You can take a look at the Khan Academy as an example. Oh, yeah. They've got a lot of good science curriculum. Now, it's not direct instruction, and Salman Khan doesn't know about direct instruction or precision teaching, but he knows how to develop courses for kids who can learn pretty much on their own. We need to become the feeder school and the special ed school for the Khan Academy. And then anybody, it's like the project I'm working with in Dhaka in Bangladesh. Yeah, we'll get onto that in a second. Yeah, and then yeah. anybody can access this anywhere and not be reliant right. on a school to learn. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. We're going to end run the schools. Yeah. Kids will still go to school, but it will not be the same way. They will have their own curriculum. They'll have their own courses. They'll have social aspects, and you know, they'll still have the trips, and they'll still have the the uh, teams and all of that. But the instruction is going to change dramatically because they're going to be getting courses that are direct instruction based with a precision teaching outcome and a a behavior analytic reward system. And how is that going to happen? It is happening. I've already got the first 120 lessons done of a reading program. Okay, great. And I'm teaching it to to slum, to kids in the slums on a cell phone. I have a video of you showing me that occurring in Dhaka. How did this project, talk to me about this project and how it came about and. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my. Uh, You asked the best questions. Okay. Well, this started, 
I, I was in China setting up a school for children with autism. I came home from one of my trips and uh, my librarian called me and she said, Michael, I, uh, we had a book reading last night and the author came, but only four people showed up. And this book is really interesting. I think you, you should read it before I put it on the reserve shelf. So I went down and got it. I literally read it in one night. Yeah. And it was a story of, of this family, Tannis and Jem Monroe. And they, Tannis is a PhD educator, psychologist, and she was asked to do an analysis of the DACA school system. And she did. And it was horrible, as you expect. And so what she found was the system was bad, but what wasn't happening was even worse. There were thousands upon thousands of children who were excluded from even this you know, crappy school system because they couldn't afford the tuition or the books or the, the clothing, right? So they just got left in the slums. So she and her husband said, well, what about these kids? And they said, oh, you can't help them. And she said, well, I think we should try. So they went around to all the major fundraisers, all the major, you know, agencies, including the UN and, you know, all of that, the Red Cross and, you know, Save the Children. And they all just laughed at them and said, you're crazy, right? And they said, first of all, you want to go into those slums. Well, you, you may get in, but you'll never get out. You want to teach women. Well, they're at the bottom of the social ladder there. And you won't be able to get to them anyway. And even if you do, they can't learn. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. And Jem turned to the guy and said, and you know this how? Is it because of your visits there? And the guy said, no, we wouldn't go in there. And Jem said, well, I guess we'll have to go find out then. So they took their family, three kids, and the two of them, and they went into this slum and they started teaching mothers. And they taught them, they taught them to read in Bangla. The, the language of Bangladesh, and then they taught them to read in English. And they kept growing these little schools. Well, Jem wrote a book, and that was the book that the librarian handed me. Right. And I read it, and I just was blown away. Yeah. And so I turned it over, and on the back cover was a phone number from Vancouver. So I called the 600, the 604 number, yeah. and it rang in Ottawa. <laughs> They were in Ottawa on their way on their first cross-country book tour with one book. Well, I've written 30 books. I've been on the road for six years flogging books at conferences and conventions, right? Yeah. So I called them and said, you guys need to stop when you're coming by. Where are you headed? They were headed to Peterborough, a town north of me. Right. And I said, right. You're coming right up Highway 7. I'll meet you in Maydock. <laughs> I, I want to talk to you over lunch. So we brought them in. They showed up in a Subaru. Uh, wagon yeah. with all of their possessions, you know, two of the three kids and uh, themselves, four of them, and all of their worldly possessions, including the tent that they were going to pitch every night while, while they were going across the country. Wow. I said, well, this, this isn't going to work, guys. You, know, <laughs> you, need, you need some help. So I suggested to them that since I was a member of Rotary and the chair of our literacy committee, for our club that we they should start visiting rotary clubs across the country as well as bookstores because rotary clubs support literacy and they came out of there after a presentation with a check every time for 500 bucks and they could do two or three clubs a day wow and they took all that money that they got yeah and i helped them to get 
my staff and I helped them to get set up with various rotary clubs across the country. And they got enough money to set up more than one school. They just kept adding as the money came in. Then they moved to the States and did the same thing there. And they got, uh, now they have something in the order of 14 schools. And they have about 600 volunteers who would be willing to teach if only they had the materials. So we have donated the program to anybody who has a cell phone in Bangladesh in, in, because you need to have it supervised. Yeah. And we help them get started with some cell phones. And uh, we've got 20 mothers, 20 new cell phones, five kids each. And so we got 100 new more kids into the program in the last two months. Wow. And that video that you see of that young lady dressed in white. Yep. She's being taught by a mother, by a volunteer, who is one of the mothers uh, from Amarok Society, the company, the, the NGO that uh, runs this, a small Canadian non-government organization. And we've hung on to them for the last 13 years. Uh, helping them get these schools started, helping them get connected to Rotary, you know, helping them make a difference. And do you have any data on how many kids have been impacted? Not yet, no, because we only we only launched this program in September. Okay. And we had to, first of all, raise the money to be able to afford the cell phones to fund the pilot project. Then we had to get the, all that stuff over there, get it in their hands, do the training with it so that they could a learn to use the cell phones and then we could start them learning the program and right now uh, this week we should have our very first outcome data because some of the students are now at lesson five where the first fluency check kicks in okay yeah i, I have no fears i know what's going to happen I mean, come on, I got Zig Engelman and Og Lindsley's <laughs> stuff mashed together. What's going to happen? Great stuff is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the mother who's teaching the kid has two buttons. She presses one for the next piece of curriculum. She presses back if the child needs a model lead test repetition. So, and you've got to pass this, the, the fluency checks with specific targets or you can't go on to the next block of lessons. And I've got two very bright young women running the project, 10 mothers each, and we meet on Zoom once a week or more. And they send me, they take videos, 30-second videos of a mother teaching a task to a, a child. And I can critique that, share it with them, and they'll go back. Like one of the things kids do is, they stop between the sounds. Yeah. Can't allow them to do that. So if I see a 30-second video where the child is stopping between the sounds, I'll tell Happy or her partner, uh, go make sure that they don't stop between the sounds. What happens when they, that happens? They go in and show the mother what, I mean, it's all model lead test, so they can hear it. Yeah, model lead test. You know, if you're sounding out a word, you'll hear that, that woman, sound, or that young lady sound out the word rat. Yeah. And she didn't stop between the sounds, right? Why is that important, Michael, for those of you who are listening that are not familiar with that reading? Why is it important that there's no break between the sounds? Well, because the, the child will, the learner, whether child or adult, will uh, basically 
stop between the sounds, creating a gap. And then when they try to put it together as a word, they speed up the sound and the gaps, and it comes out erroneously. Yeah. Er, at, can become rut, can become many things. Yeah. Rot, rat, take your pick. Right. So the sounds need to be blended together. Well, it's just what Zingagolin would teach you. Yeah. You got to know all the sounds. You can only use sounds that you've taught in any words you're going to teach. You can only put those words in a story after you've taught them as words. There's no mystery here. It's We have a way of teaching irregular words. I mean, it's it's just good direct instruction. Okay. So this program, uh, does it have a name? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, basically, it's called the Maloney Method uh, System, yeah. reading system. Reading system. And uh, it's on the website. Okay. What's your dream for the system? Is your Are your clients parents? Are your clients schools? Yeah, they are. Schools? No, they're parents. These are mothers. They're parents. Yeah. Yeah. You see the future is parents recognizing that their kids can't read and right. finding resources that are easily available, not too expensive, and taking on the role of overseeing their own child's education at home. Yeah, I also would see teachers of special needs kids going to that so that they don't have to learn direct instruction, precision teaching. All they got to learn is how to follow the script uh, and listen to it and see the child got it right. I mean, they become a monitor, not a teacher, So they, but they're going to get success because the, the systems work. Yeah. I can see it being used by homeschoolers. I can see it being used by primary school across a wide range. Anyone who's who's learning English and and how many cell phones do we have in the world? Yeah, plenty. Plenty, and we got nine hundred million illiterate people on this mud ball right now. Wow. What about BCBAs that are you know graduating with? skills where they don't know how to, well, there's the challenge, first of all, that insurance might not fund this, right, in, mm-hmm. in ABA programs. Is, is there a way of overcoming that? Yeah, they, they get away from the insurance companies. I mean, right now I've, I've got 10 people in my group. I only take 10 a year Yeah. at any given time. And uh, five of them have already started their own learning centers and got completely out of the insurance business. Yeah. Okay. So there's are going to be... Uh, Parents that are privately funding therapy for their kids? Are there insurance companies that have allowed the student to be taught to read? Because some of them do. Or it's also a situation in which the BCBA has convinced them that this is speech and language program. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you can call it reading. You could call it. Um, you can call it language. Language. Yeah. <laughs> or speech. Yeah. Or both. Yeah, whatever. On a day-to-day basis, Michael, how much of your time is spent trying to uh, advocate for these parents and these teachers, the BCBAs, to access your system? Because this is really hard to develop on your own, isn't it? Like, if you're someone that is motivated to teach kids and you don't know direct instruction, you don't know precision teaching, uh, to try and develop your own program, that's really, really hard, right? Well, you can't. You're not an instructional designer to start with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the great problems we've got in education is they, you know, they don't ask jet pilots to to prepare the airplane. They don't <laughs> ask surgeons to prepare the operating theater. But we ask teachers to go home at night and crank out lessons for tomorrow. And I mean, essentially, we're teaching or treating the children as guinea pigs. Yeah. We don't know if it worked. There's no data. 
So a teacher should never be asked to do that. that. That's way above the way they were trained. They didn't get a course in instructional design. They sure haven't got through theory of instruction by Engelman and, and, and Carnine. So uh, it's really unfair to expect that of a teacher. And that's why I have so much sympathy for them. They should be delivering a really good program that has been tested and, you know, forged in steel and works every time or very nearly every time. And so what's your dream for how to make that happen? Well, put it all in a package that the teacher doesn't need to learn the systems. She needs to learn how to run the package. Yeah. And make it as little as as few as two buttons if you possibly can. Yeah. And make it cheap. Amazing. Um, So I am going to link to that in the show notes so people can find out more. Can you talk to me a little bit about, I know you've talked about this in other podcasts, but just we've covered a lot, but, um, you know, talk to me a little bit about your views on behavioralists coming out of BCBA program and going and teaching kids, not having, you know, training in the things that you've talked about today, direct instruction, precision teaching, those things. Talk to me a little bit about how our field got to that point where we've lost contact okay. with some of the most powerful measures that we know. Yeah, well, first of all, it is being undermined actively by your Department of Education, and that's a, the first thing we'd want to turn around. They should be on our side, not ditching this stuff and, and not reporting it. Secondly, uh, you have to look at the nature of the beast you're dealing with. It has changed dramatically over the last 50 years. And my first schoolhouse was uh, basically a one-room school. And it was run by the community. There was no superintendent. There was the teacher who lived somewhere in the area, 30 or 40 kids or whatever, or maybe two rooms. But it was a small community-based entity. And then as after the war, the Second World War, when the, the baby boom started, those Became, those schools grew dramatically, and essentially what happened was they needed more management, so they brought in people to manage them who didn't know what they were doing, and good-hearted and all that, but and maybe even good managers. But what you've got, what you've got then is uh, the school dissociating itself further and further from the parent that they're supposed to be serving and the child they're supposed to be serving. So now that develops into districts. First it was small clusters, then they became districts. The district steps in and starts dictating the terms of the budget and all of that because now we have to, you know, the housing uh, revenue uh, for our taxes on houses is what's going to carry this. So that goes over to the council and then special ed gets to be an issue. So they bring in the state with the state funding and that's not sufficient. So then it goes federal and you get, you know, the the various federal programs involved and everything gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it gets more complex because now if the custodians go on strike, you can't. You have to close the school because of health issues or fire issues or whatever. And so you've got this whole group of people, each with their own agendas. And, and the bottom line is supposed to be kids. But that's long been lost. Yeah. So how do you change that? Well, 
you can change parts of it really easily. You could change parts of it by training our teachers, you know, even if we have to do it remotely and, and give them the lessons, we could, we could have teachers and parents working with their kids either at school or after school or out of school, whatever. That could change a huge amount. Yeah. And, and I guess there's a flow-on effect is that when parents are able to do that simply and affordably, you know, the, the teacher's going to see what's occurring too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know what happened when COVID hit. We put every stitch of our curriculum up on our website for free. Right. Because we knew that the parents were freaking out. We knew that the teachers were completely discombobulated trying to do this remotely. And so we gave up all of our materials on the website, just download them and use them. And now they have structured lessons in reading, writing, spelling, math, right? Well, 100,000 of those went out the door. Wow. (laughs) Our sales dropped by 90%. Yeah. (laughs) Because, of course, we're, we're giving it away for free, right? How would teachers have found out about your program? Oh, they, the Rotary Clubs. Oh, right. Okay, got it. We sent it, the, the message out to the Rotaries divided into districts. Yeah. Districts have chairs and chairs of literacy. And, and so they simply, we fed it into the stream and it went out in the, in the bulletins of the Rotary Clubs across North America. And they passed it on to the schools and 100,000 people downloaded some of our material. Wow, that's wonderful. And we damn near went broke. <laughs> so, but going back now, are, some, are those people still using your system, do you think? Yeah, but last, uh, about a year after we did that, we said, hey, we can't do this anymore. Yeah. Because otherwise we're going to be bankrupt and that's not going to help anybody. So we started selling uh, five lessons for four ninety five. Oh, okay, great. And the people already got the free ones and then they came back and said, I want more of that. It's four ninety five. Well, no, yeah, just, don't they just sign up? Fantastic. And how many subscribers do you have? I have no idea. Really? <laughs> Thousands. Wow. I think you mentioned a number like how many centers are you either um, consulting to or had an impact in their formation? Do you have data on that? Centers? Yeah, like learning centers. Well, it's a, it's a hard count because... Most of the people that I have started a center with, and I think uh, my last count was 25. Yeah. But there's a pattern that happens. Yeah. The pattern is a young woman recently graduated from university, has done two years in school and doesn't want to go back to the classroom. Yeah. So she starts a learning center. And two years later, she gets married. And a year after that, she has a baby. And a year after that, she closes her learning center. Mm. So I've probably started 50 of them, but I don't think there's more than a dozen that are still operating um, Yeah. at any one time. But I just started five more this year. And whereabouts are they? Uh, one in California, two in Florida. I'd have to go to my list. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's, they're spread fairly evenly across. And a couple of them are homeschoolers. Uh, one of them's a teacher in a classroom. So she's in Montana. Tennessee. So here's Og's message to everybody to start private learning centres, impact kids in that way. Now you've taken it and said, well, now we have technology where kids can access these incredible, what we know from our science, anywhere, anytime on a cell phone and impact more kids. 
is basically how you've run with that message and and been working every day for the last however many years, however many decades. <laughs> and uh, is that how you is that your goal? Yeah, I, I've picked out essentially what was the old British Empire. Yeah, because they have British style schools. And they, a lot of them have a lot of people who speak English or want to learn to speak English. So it's easy. When I went to Hong Kong, everyone speaks English. They also speak you know, Mandarin or any some other dialects. But those are my top priorities. So I'd, I'd like to get into South Africa and teach all the kids in the ghettos. Yeah, And I'm hoping that Rotary Clubs will continue to support us so I can do that. We've given them an 80% off uh, discount for buying a copy of the software and sending it to a school or a uh, library or somewhere, a literacy source or whatever. And we'll throw in the, the uh, cell phone if they don't have one wow. and the internet if they don't have one. Fantastic. And is that how you see your days, you know, playing out is impacting yep. <laughs> thousands yeah. of people? Well, we get all that done, I'm going to take a break. <laughs> so talk to me. I mean, this is based on the foundation that learning to read can change your life. Is, it, is that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, we, everyone knows that. Talk to me about that philosophy. Not learning how to read is what's so hard, so absolutely difficult yeah and it's fixable it's fixable. so let's fix it let's fix it okay um now i asked you a question before and i might not have answered it asked it clear enough what's your hope for you know rbts and and bcbas to find their way to precision teaching and direct instruction given that it's basically falling off the task list and there are more than a hundred thousand of these types of people in america at least that's okay. We can handle that. Okay, how? Well, we have our six-part course that covers behavior objectives, behavior analysis, yeah. instruction, direct instruction, precision teaching, directed practice, and independent practice. And each one is a two-hour individual seminar, and we are going to have a meeting, a Zoom meeting that people can come to and answer, get their questions answered and show their data and whatever else. And we're going to ask them to do things like take a 30-second video of some task that you're teaching some child, whether it be language or spelling or whatever, submit it, and we'll give you feedback. Great. How, how do we find our way these materials? Uh, it's on the website. Okay, uh, it right. only went up last week. I'm not even sure it's available right okay. now. I'm sure by the time this podcast launches, it will be. So again, I'll put... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Andrew will look after that. And I the bottom line is it, it's going to cost $19.95 for each of the six sets. Wow. That's... Or, well, it's got to be affordable. These homeschoolers can't afford that. Yeah. And that'll be available for, for anyone? It's open to... Anyone. Yeah. Anyone. I'm, you don't have any restrictions. Okay, wonderful. I've shared uh, <laughs> five decades of your life. Could have asked you a thousand other questions, um, but I think that leaves me with a lot of hope that our science, drawn upon from all that you have learned in contact with Eric Horton and Og and and Fred, as you called him, and all of those things yeah. that you have been practicing and implementing and advocating for across your lifetime, are now showing up in affordable materials 
for anyone that wants to access them from a parent to a BCBA, showing up on mobile phones in disadvantaged communities around the world, that's a pretty incredible contribution. Well, we better get it set first. Yeah. It's all first degree at this point. It could fall apart in a minute. Well, let's hope that the audience here listens to your message. (laughs) Here's your journey and your stand for people for language and reading and all of those things that can change your life. Yeah, we'll do as much as we can to get that information out. I need to have you back because there's so many things that you just skimmed over. I'll come anytime. If you've got a gap, just give me a call. Yeah, well, you skimmed over, you know, a lot of things there and a lot of the work and the number of people that you have profoundly impacted. And, you know, Carl uh, called upon me to, to... to talk about your influence on Kent Johnson and Morningside. I hope I've done that. I hope I've honoured his wish to me. We've given information to people, I think, that are motivated to start their own centres and getting out of schooling systems or, or you know, big behavioural centres that what they feel they're not impacting kids in the, in the way they could. I just can't thank you enough for sharing that, talking about some extraordinary people that, that you came across in your lifetime that impacted you. And, Thank you for your contribution, everything you've done, and I, I want to have you back to ask you some more questions. <laughs> it would be my pleasure. I will be linking all of those resources so people can find out more. It's been an absolute blessing talking to you and an honour to know you. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. All right. Thank you. I appreciated the time. <laughs>